<laughs> have you, have, so have you seen the meme that's gone around that says, uh, banana without the bee is just a pineapple? Because pineapple in like most European languages is ananas. Oh, no, I hadn't. So it's basically um, a pineapple is a banana without attitude. A pineapple is just... <laughs> It's proof that the pineapple is the friendly fruit. Welcome to So Psychological, the podcast where two friends investigate the world of psych. All the analysis, none of the professionalism. Hello and welcome to So Psychological. I'm Susie Jenkins and this is my co-host, all the artwork in the Guggenheim. Cinepas unananas. And a meeny miny mo. Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> All right. This weekend we're going to be talking about the episode Who You Gonna Call? Who You Gonna Call? So, would you like to kick us off with a summary? I would love to kick us off with a summary. flashback opening this episode shows a troubled sean jumping the fence to rush into his house now henry who's sitting on the porch stops sean and asks what's going on sean reveals that a big bad ryan Brickhouse is waiting to get him (laughs) henry is able to find out that this imminent attack is not without provocation and of course he encourages sean to find a better way to deal with the situation Now, Sean does this by promising to help Ryan pass the math test with the answers that Sean's already memorized. Of course, when Henry finds out this, he needs to make things fair for the test. He calls the teacher, lets her know. In the present day, our still childlike adult version of Sean has hired a temp from the modeling agency, as Gus quickly discovers when he walks into the psych office. Now, they head to the case of a murdered psychiatrist, but are kicked out by Lassie. And back at the office, Sean decides then they, they just need a break, a day off, a little sun soaking, maybe. They work at the beach. I know, right? However, a potential client enters, and this time it's Gus who's the one who's actually ready for the case. As the man Robert is telling his story of his life being haunted, Sean dismisses him. But Gus becomes more determined to take the case because his personal childhood experience with hearing a ghostly voice, which of course was actually Sean. I thought it was Wilting Flower. I am Wilting Flower, says Sean. Oh! Mm. In checking Robert's house, Sean quickly concludes that this is the work of an ex-girlfriend. But after interviewing her, it just doesn't fit. So they do, however, pick up a name of interest from her and another name from a file they see Juliet holding when they pass her investigating that doc's murder. So they are also victims of an intentional car crash. A lot going on here. Now back at Robert's house, Sean is able to piece together physical evidence with the stories to conclude that Robert is in fact his own ghost. How is that, you ask? Well, it turns out that Robert has multiple personalities, and while his female personality is seeking to transition and has been trying to communicate with Robert, the third personality is the murderer of the doctor who was actually helping with the process. So, that Regina, the female personality, had found a new doctor that would now be in danger, Sean and Gus rushed to that doctor's appointment just in time to stop Martin, the third personality. Now, with the case solved, Sean and Gus returned to the psych office where the new model at the desk, well, not quite what they were expecting. Unable to deal with him face to face, Sean fires him via text. Well, I mean, he is an Adonis. He's better looking than both of them put together, except for Gus. So one of the things I want to talk about in this episode relates to communication and how, you know, like we love watching Sean and Gus and their side banter. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter. They could be in a room with six people, like say chief fix office or whatever. And maybe like the conversation 
there'll be the main conversation going on in the room and then they'll have like a little side conversation that maybe starts with the topic that was related to the topic in the room, but then it, it ventures totally off track to some kind of pop culture reference and then a dispute over said pop said culture pop, reference. Yep. And then it might relate either back to the topic or they get called out and need to hush up and then get back into the situation. But they have these wonderful little side moments where they're always communicating with each other, just as friends who know each other like the back of their hands would, mm -hmm. right? Well, in this episode, there are so many times where they can't do that, but they still have things that need to be said. Yes. So we get to see them have these wonderful moments of communication that are a little bit less traditional. So for example, let me explain. Like in the first scene where uh, Robert is coming in, to their office. Now, Robert, of course, is, is feeling like he's being haunted. So he can't go to the police or a regular private detective because they're not going to take him seriously. Of course, he goes to a psychic detective because a haunting would be paranormal, right? Yes. So where else would he go but someone who could deal with potentially the paranormal issues? Yeah, exactly. The second he mentions his problem, Sean gets up from the chair and goes directly behind him out of Robert's eyesight to tell Gus through the use of hand signals and everything. No, no, no. We are not taking this case mm -hmm. because he just doesn't believe in ghosts. Yeah. He doesn't believe in psychics. And yet here he is pretending to be a psychic, having a pretend psychic de detective agency, wanting to be taken serious, but he's not going to take somebody else serious who's coming in with paranormal situation yeah well because we know that when sean doesn't want to do something sean isn't gonna do something it's like that little child all over again oh yeah he's already ruled it out there's not Full on four he's not like moves. thinking that compassion of oh here's somebody who's experiencing something and since they're giving credence to what i do i'll just give them some credence and we'll at least do some investigation no he's just thinking ah i don't want to touch it yeah <laughs> let's run you know let's let's keep our plans and go to the beach you know because Sean After doesn't all those want animal to do crackers. It, right? But Gus, because of his own experience in the past, he's adamant. So he stays focused on the client and actually stops looking at Sean so that he can ignore those signals and ignore the mouthing words of Sean saying, no, no, no. And he gives that full attention so that he can say, yeah, we're taking this case. Tell me more. Tell yeah. me more. So Which just shows the extreme willpower of Gus to be right. able to ignore Sean. The flailer. Flailing yeah. wildly. Yeah, I mean, he's not flailing so wildly in this particular scene as wildly as we know he could. Yes, that's true. Although it is amazing how often that even the small degrees of flails he does, he's not noticed. Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> But then again, when people are caught up in their trauma, they're not going to be able to see that because they are they have to tell their story. And that's a right thing. They need to be able to tell that. Yeah. And they're focused on that. And so Gus stays focused on the client. So Sean is desperate because he has things he has to say. And Gus is ignoring him. But he's not going to let it go. He's not going to just be like, oh, okay, Gus is saying no. Because, you know, this is Sean we're this talking about. This is Sean. He pulls out the cell phone, his little flip phone, and um, texts Gus. His uh, Motorola Razor? I think that's what it is. I'm not too sure. But it's, it's a little flip phone for sure. Yeah. It's going back a little bit. <laughs> and uh, and Gus, oh, how hard that would be. But especially for Gus, who's so responsible with his phones, uh huh, to ignore that text because he knows it's coming from Sean. Oh, he's yeah. Because they're watching him text, right? And so Sean is having to coax him. Don't you, don't you need to get that? Don't you need to get that? It's important. And Gus, of course, he's going to, one, have to get it to kind of get Sean to stop. And two, he's going to have to get it also so he doesn't appear unprofessional in front of the client. Possibly, yes. Right? So he opens it up and it's, it's the text from Sean. And so he instantly texts back, you know, and so they end up having this whole text conversation in the middle of this client pouring his heart out. To these boys, right? Yes. And and Gus is adamant. And I think that's really cool. So they have, the, they're just in sync. But Gus holds his own and they take the case. So it gets to the point where Sean is so frustrated that at one point, 
with these text messages, he actually blurts out loud. He answers not via text, but out loud, verbally. Verbally, yeah. Where he's like, oh, really? And of course, the client thinks he's talking about what he just said. And he's like, yes. Yeah. And so Gus responds. Of course, he's responding to Sean about taking the case. Yes, Sean. But one of the other things that that does, which is really beautiful is it confirms to the client yes because the client's still hearing it in the context of their verbal conversation Uh, mm -hmm. so he's hearing yes we're hearing him we're going to be on your side we're taking this case for you you know and it's just a great exchange now again the client is going to be present later on and he is going to be in a in a difficult situation in a different scene And they're going to have to have another discreet conversation where Sean is now. He's initiating the conversation with Gus again, using hand signals and mouthing out the words, telling Gus, telling Gus, listen, you're the one nearest him. You need to comfort him. Now the client's not seeing him, even though he's facing Sean because his head is down. He's really upset and distraught. And Gus is like, that makes me a little uncomfortable. So no, I'm not going to do that. Well, Sean concedes. Okay. Rather than forcing you to do it or me doing it myself, I'll compromise. I'll meet you partway, right? Yeah. We'll play Jonkin for it, uh, right? Also known as rock, paper, scissors. Right. So, yeah, Jonkin is, is rock, paper, scissors classic <laughs> game right there. Sorry. Um, so they throw their rock, paper, scissors. And, of course, Sean wins. So Gus is, like, still determined. He's like, no, best two out of three. I mean, the fact that we can kind of quote this whole conversation and yet no words were said. Yes. You know, and of course, then Sean wins. And Sean does this whole like, like touchdown dance, basically, at winning. But the poor guy still doesn't notice. So then Gus has to comfort him. Again, a whole communication, a whole conversation happens without a word being spoken. Yeah. Now. We have this great scene where Gus wakes up in the car because he has been drugged. Six allergy pills. Right? Six. Right. To go interview this witness, the ex-girlfriend, right? And I just, I don't even understand how Gus is standing, how he's not groggy, how he's able to stand at that front door when they're ringing that doorbell. Like, what is up with that? I'm just going to say it again. Six. Six allergy pills. You would at least expect him to like have heavy eyelids or at least be like swaying a little. I don't know that I would be saying words. I know. But anyway, so they, she opens the door. Sean just looks at her, says, Oh, not her goes to leave. Mm -hmm. Gus obviously is upset because of course he's just been drugged with six allergy pills. Right. And to go all of this distance for this. And so He's going to put his foot down again. No, we're investigating this case. We need to hear her out. Yeah. If it was worth drugging me, we're going to spend a few minutes talking to this lady. Right. And so he's going to have this conversation to convince Sean to do this. But he's upset at Sean. And he's not wanting to talk to Sean. He's actually uncomfortable talking to Sean right now. Mm -hmm. So what does he do? Well, he pulls out his little slidey phone and starts texting him. And I'm, I'm... Texting with my I head. see. The, There's beautiful texting happening right now, listeners. It's so beautiful. It's air texting. She's got both thumbs going. I wish you could see it. Oh, I'm a little bit of a flailer too. A little bit. Anyway, so he starts texting Sean. And Sean, of course, they're in the middle of a street. And Gus hasn't crossed the street to the car because Gus is putting his foot down. Yeah. But there's no reason to not talk verbally. So Sean answers him back verbally. Verbally. But Gus is solely doing this to make a point. I don't want to talk to you. But again, I want to make sure I'm heard. And again, texting, texting, texting. Until finally Sean concedes. And then how does Gus answer him? Oh, with a look. Not even with a word, but with a look. With a look. So again, we have this wonderful scene where we get nothing verbally really Mm -hmm. I mean we get it from Sean's side but we get so much now the show ends with another little kind of funny joke with the texting but this time it's not between Sean and Gus so they come in and there's Leslie but Leslie is not the model that Sean was expecting and so Sean's like we just have to fire him 
because this is not acceptable. Yeah. But Gus is like, no, we can't do that. You made this happen. You need to deal with this. Yeah. Well, and Gus knows that they don't have any grounds to fire this guy. Yeah. It's totally unprofessional. He deals with enough of Sean's messes anyway. Oh, so many messes. Right? So he leaves it to Sean and he heads out. And of course, we've already learned through this whole episode that when they have something that absolutely has to be said, but they're uncomfortable saying it or they can't say it face to face or something is going on where it can't be said in a traditional way, what do they do? They text. So Sean pulls out his little flip phone and poor Leslie gets the X. <laughs> You're fired. So I just, I just love it because there's all of this wonderful communication happening and yet so few words. Yeah. I, the thing that I thought about when you were talking about all this is the scenes with Lassiter and Juliet. Right. And so you have all of this non-traditional, direct, indirect conversation occurring between Sean and Gus. Mm-hmm. And then we have what's happening in the other main partnership of the series, Lassiter and Juliet. Yeah. And they're having these direct but indirect conversations. Yeah. So we have, we see in one scene where Juliet says, that's a really good approach. And Carlton asks if, if she's being sarcastic and she says, no. And he's like, well, thank you very much. And she was like, well, was that sarcastic? And and he says, no. And then she goes, oh, well, you're welcome. The look on his face, you can tell they're still like, they're not, they're not reading each other well right. at all in right. this moment. And then we jump to the, to a few scenes later with Lassiter and Juliet again. And she's, um, and they're having a conversation and Lassiter says, well, maybe you should keep your ideas to yourself. And Juliet was like, you're kidding, right? Is, is that? Is, are you joking? Yeah. Yeah. And, and at this point, Lassiter says no, even though Juliet has read the situation correctly, he's not ready to like own up and have like truthful, direct conversation with mm -hmm. her. And so I, the juxtaposition of those two partnerships occurring in this episode, I really, really liked how they played that out because we've got Sean and Gus with decades of communication between right. the two of them, that we're seeing verbal communication, nonverbal communication. We're seeing direct communication. We're seeing indirect communication. And they really are, throughout most of it, reading each other correctly. Mm -hmm. And then over here with Lassiter and Juliet, they've been doing this, what, maybe six weeks, a couple months? Yeah. That they've been partners. And we see they're attempting to have direct conversation and not being honest with each other. They're attempting to have some indirect conversation and still not being honest with each other. And I, I just really think it's very intriguing, I think, yeah. of how they played out those two partnerships in this episode where you've got one like really established partnership and the way that they're handling the conflict and even just the day-to-day -day frustration with each other. And then you've got a really new partnership and the way that they're handling the day-to-day -day conflict with each other. Right. Because Sean and Gus use very few words. Mm -hmm. And Lassie and Jules are using all the words. And very direct, blunt questions. Right. Yeah. And yet it's a very different situation. And I think you're right. That is an interesting kind of pairing if you kind of put them together. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of times we... As people, we, we expect out of the other person, but we also sometimes even hold ourselves to that expectation maybe of the level of understanding Yes, as the tw of the 20 plus year old relationship, Yes, even when we're only two months in. Yeah. We want, we want to be able to have that, to be able to read facial expressions, to be able to, to read even posture and right into another person. And without allowing that time for that to develop. What, yeah. And learning like what all of those things mean for the person that you're actually interacting with. And I think one of the keys to it really is that honest communication. Yeah. Because Lassie and Jules, they are communicating, 
But even in that second bit, it's not quite honest, but they both kind of know. But one of the things I think is cool is she's actually giving him an out. Yeah. By phrasing it as a question and giving him a kind of, you're kidding, right? You know, like, or what does she say? That's a joke, right? Because it's giving him an out. So there's not an offense on the front end of their relationship. Yes. Whereas like, there's all kinds of offenses happening over here with Sean and Gus's in their communications, even without the words. Oh, absolutely. But the difference is their relationship is so well established. Those offenses aren't necessarily taking root or anything. They're just. Yeah, they can withstand their, those it's, it's, offenses. It's just jokes and, and fun. Whereas at this point in the relationship with Lassie and Jules, those would take root and actually destroy any future partnership they would be able mm-hmm. to do because they wouldn't be able to trust each other or anything. Uh, but that was something that was developed over time with, with Sean the, and with Gus. The, with the, the, the psych And agency. so that is a really cool kind of running parallel through this episode. Yeah. I, I thought that was really cool the way they did that. Me too. All right. So we have done a number of fun facts about different guest stars. And I want to do another one of those today because in this episode, who you're going to call our main guest star is Frank Whaley. We see him play three characters in this episode. We do. And he plays Robert, Regina, and Martin Brody. Right? Well, Frank Whaley is an actor. He's born and bred in Syracuse, New York. He's a New Yorker through and through. Wow. He's actually a critically acclaimed actor, writer, and director of screen and stage. Mm-hmm. So he's one of these like classically trained guys who just loves the stage. He loves theater. He's in it for reals, right? He's actually worked with countless legends in the industry. Uh, just to show you how good this guy is, his directorial debut, his first one, was Joe the King in 1999. It actually earned him a screenwriting prize at the 1999 Sundance Film Festival. Wow. I mean, this guy, he's got this incredible list of credits that start all the way back in the late 80s with afternoon school specials. Oh, that's awesome. And they run through the gamut of almost every like detective and law procedural, like from the 90s to the present. Um, He's had solid runs on several shows, even including Marvel's Luke Cage. A lot of the types. Oh, he was in that. A lot. He was the police officer. A lot of the grittier types of dramas. Uh Uh-huh. He's in a lot of grittier movies. In fact, the thing that he's most known for playing is a character called Brett in 1994's Pulp Fiction. Yes. So he's only in the one scene, but he's in that beginning scene. He's the one who delivers the suitcase. And it's the scene where Samuel L. Jackson has that great monologue. Mm -hmm. And so it's the scene that he's most famous for, even though it was just one scene. Now, he's worked with directors like Oliver Stone. He was in Born of the Fourth of July. He's just done incredible things. Obviously, and when Quentin you, Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. If you if you listen to him talk in interviews or you read any of his interviews that he's done with journalists, I mean, this guy can name drop with the best of them, except he seems actually very humble in his name dropping. Yes. You know, these are just natural connections of people that he meets through the art. And I love that about him. So- One of the things that he does in this particular episode of Psych is he plays a character called Martin Brody, which we learn in the episode is the main character's name in Jaws. Yeah. Well, because Sean has seen Jaws. Right. Well, Frank Whaley actually played in 1994, which was his year, apparently, because that was his year that he was in Pulp Fiction. But he played a, a main character opposite Kevin Spacey in a movie called Swimming with Sharks. That's awesome. Now, this movie was actually about Kevin Spacey's character. They were in Hollywood, and Kevin Spacey's character was the boss, and he was a bully, and he, like, was abusive to Frank's character, whose name is Guy, to the point that Guy then becomes a bully and kidnaps his boss and tortures him. And actually, in the end, Guy turns into a murderer. (laughs) Which is interesting because our guy, Martin Brody, who swims with the sharks, also a murderer. Also a murderer. That's true. So like I said, he deals with a lot of these darker, grittier dramas, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's just evidence of it right there. So one of the reasons why he was actually cast in Psych was because a few years earlier, in 1989, 
he played in a film that is a brilliant film. I love it. Let me just see. Do you know what this is? If I said, if you build it, they will come. Um, field of dreams. That's right. And in this field was a baseball field. Yep. And of course, the ghosts of great baseball players came and played on that field. One of them being Archie Graham. Frank Whaley played Archie Graham in that film. And it's because of his role as a ghost in that movie that he was cast in Psych. Yeah. Because this is the episode all about ghosts. That's actually what I was, I was like. Did, was, didn't he play a ghost? Yeah. So I just want to add to this level of what I think we need to start calling now when I do these segments on are these guest stars. Guest stars. I think, I think we need to start calling this like the six degrees of psych. Ooh, yes. Right? Because Frank Whaley also had another paranormal role. Oh. On USA Network. Okay. Just a few years prior on a show that ran from 2002 to 2007, helmed by one Anthony Michael Hall. He was on The Dead Zone? He was on The Dead Zone. He was on two seasons of The Dead Zone. Guess what he was? A ghost. A psychic. Oh, that is so incredible. His character, much like the main character that Anthony Michael Hall played, uh, who whose character's name was Johnny, he developed his psychic abilities after awakening from a coma. Okay. And so he, he had this unique ability where they could work in tandem. And that was his role. And so adding to this six degrees of six psychness. degrees of psychness. Back in the day, he founded, because I said he loves theater, he founded a, a theater company in New York called Malaparte, and he founded it with Ethan Hawke, whom he met when he was making a movie called Midnight Clear. Now, Ethan Hawke was a great star in the 90s and mm -hmm. throughout, and all, we know he loves stage as well. Ethan Hawke played in Dead Poet Society with Robert Sean Leonard, where they became great friends. So Ethan introduced Frank to Robert Sean Leonard. And then Robert Sean Leonard and Frank did a movie together called Swing Kids. Well, Ethan Hawke also did a movie called Reality Bites with yes. Steve Zahn. Yes. Uh, and introduced Frank to him. And so that theater company was founded by Ethan Hawke, Robert Sean Leonard, Steve Zahn, and Frank Whaley. The four of them decided to set up this theater company together. Wow, that's a powerhouse group. Many major stars have gone through this theater company. Now, they dissolved the company in 2000 because they all wanted to focus on taking care of their kids, which I think is very noble, uh, noble and admirable. But he did have this best friend relationship with Ethan Hawke and apparently one Val Kilmer. Yes. A.K.A. Dobson. Six degrees of psych, people. You have like... 187 degrees of psych. What I love about psych is they'll bring in a guest star because they're going to think it's kind of a funny connection. This is an episode about ghosts. Let's bring in the ghost from Field of Dreams. They have a kind of probably a fanboy love for him because he's this amazing actor who's just worked with so many legendary people and who can do all these amazing things. And then they make all these little riffs off the side from all these little things he's done as well. But then there's all these other side connections, right? Because yes. he's worked with so many people in the business. And I love that like, it's like they're just so excited that they can get these people at all. So I, I don't even know that they're thinking of all the connections. So it's sometimes just intentional. Sometimes it's fanboy. Sometimes it's just the nature of the industry. But I love how Psych pulls them all together. And I also love the fact that like in his credits, all of them are like these serious, dark, detective, gritty dramas, right? Yes. And then they're Psych. And then they're Psych. I love it. What's not to love? So one of the things that I really liked about this episode is Carlton's story. Yeah, he's got a really good sideline going on here. Yeah, a really strong B story going. And, and we don't see a whole lot of it, but there's so much depth to what's actually going on. So much, yeah. So in the first scene, we see Carlton is shopping online and he's on the phone ordering some figurines he wants trixie the companion to scrappy right like from the audience viewpoint when you're seeing this you're like okay i thought i had a really good sense of who lassie was <laughs> and this seems very unlike the lassie i know right because these figurines are well 
Trixie and <laughs> companion. Trixie and Girl, the, what is girl it, the, Flowers. The whimsical musical or something. Merry Musicians. There it is. Merry Musicians, you know, uh, going on. And you're like, this seems odd. Like, yeah, but it's, it's a bit out of character. But you can't. Why else would he be ordering them? Yeah. You, we don't have anything else yet. Yet. And then he says, and in the card, I would like for it to say, happy birthday. X is the loneliest number in the alphabet, spelled E-X. E-X. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of emotion in from Carlton in this episode. You can see on his face. He's, he's so hopeful. He's... He's really anticipating something. Right. So it's in that moment we realize this is actually a gift for his ex, right? Yes. But you're right. Like there's this hope. There's like almost like this joy. Like he's getting the the ones that she would love. And I mean, just the fact that he knows down to the core, you know, these, you know, it's like, well, any married couple, they know their each other's quirks. They know their favorite things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they just go along with it because they love them so much. It doesn't matter. And so it's like, oh, my girl likes these crazy figurines. And somehow he knows the whole cast of characters as well as she would. Yes. You know, because of it. And so he knows which one she'd be missing and he's going to fill in those gaps. And in the card, like if you notice when he's reading out that, like you said, X is with the EX, Mm -hmm. but the emphasis of the words he puts on not yet and Husband, husband, right? Yeah. So those are words that are like showing like, look, we're still kind of together. Yes. And, you know, I'm sending you this thing, like, because I know you, you'd you like it. I'm, he, there's a lot of hope in what he's doing. There's a lot of hope. And, um, and so in the, at the end of the scene, we see Juliet come up behind him and she's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know you were into figurines, <laughs> these darling figurines. And Carlton immediately immediately shuts down the in, the exchange with her. I, she might get out like part of a sentence. My grandmother. Yeah, like. <laughs> and that's it. He's like, nope, not going there. So the next scene that we see in this um, B story is Carlton with a box and a card that says Carlton, separation means apart. Right. And once again, you see so much emotion and so much depth Um that he's playing here again is, well, the actor, Timothy, is playing in this this scene. There's so much depth of emotion happening here. And- He's gutted. Yeah, he's completely gutted. And although I do have to acknowledge that um, his soon-to-be ex-wife did spell a part correctly, and I, 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 I appreciate that. Yes, word nerd Susie is very pleased, I'm sure. I'm, I appreciate the, the appropriate use of a part. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, we see him snapping at Juliet in this, in this scene just a little bit. And this is kind of where, where they have that exchange where she says, oh, are you, are you, are you joking? And he's like, yes, yes, I am. Well, is this where she says you look sad? Yes. You know, and it's like, this is then the second time in this storyline that she's reached out to try to form some kind of emotional bond. Look, I'm trying to reach out and understand who you yeah. are as a person. And, you know, I see you relate as a person. to you, yep. I'm, you know, like in the first bit, when she sees the figurines, I'm trying to relate to you and that, oh, my grandmother used to, maybe this is, can be a connection point where we can grow you know, that didn't work. Well now, oh, you seem sad. I'm recognizing this emotion. I'm here. I'm your partner. But both times instantly shut down. Immediately shut down. And, and then the last scene that we see that plays out in this is you, you start with, by hearing um, the beautiful Danube waltz, blue Danube waltz. By Strauss. And you see Carlton lining up each of the darling figurines. Not so beautiful. They are not quite beautiful so beautiful waltz, not so beautiful figurines. Not quite so beautiful. Lining them up in the gun range and then um, shooting the darling figurines to smithereens. 
He does take proper precautions. He does. He puts on his ear protection and his safety goggles. He does everything methodically as a good detective would. He doesn't just like go in a blind rage firing. He does it all in proper order. Yes, but once again, there's still such a depth of emotion that you can see in the way that he's responding to this whole situation. Because smithereens, smithereens, that's what he blew them to, you said. That's a depth of emotion right there. It's pretty extreme. So, like, I think it's interesting because I, it makes you kind of wonder, like, you know, at that point, he's realizing this is done. It does seem like he's he's there. Because she's responded. Now, he wrote that card with this hopefulness, but everything he was pointing to was about their connection that still remained. Yes. And instead of just writing a card saying, listen, we're separated, I don't want to talk to you, or, you know, this is not who we are, she, she writes back a response that's very succinctly putting, Mm-hmm. You're writing a comment about connection. I'm writing a comment about disconnection. Yeah. It's very clear. And it's like, he went from up here, my hands up. Why? Why can't podcast listeners see my hands? Um, He went from way up here in this expectation of hope to now stomach through the floor. Yes. And it's like this, the reality is hitting him. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes you wonder how, because he had the relationship with Lucinda in the first episode yeah. that was outed by Sean. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. At this point, the only the only reference that we've had to his ex-wife, I think, is in that first episode when we learned that he's not yet divorced when his relationship is outed. Right. And it makes you wonder what the depth of that relationship was. Like, was that a relationship he had almost like out of spite to his ex for wanting the separation or I mean I believe his feelings toward Lucinda were genuine mm-hmm. because it does seem like it's obvious through these interactions that if he cares about a woman he genuinely cares yes but it it, it is odd because it makes you wonder how deep though that relationship could go when he still obviously has such strong feelings towards his wife and it could just be that you know he really couldn't be alone and he really does just genuinely miss his wife, but there is going to be that loneliness aspect and you've got buzz planning his wedding. But one of the things I'm going to talk about later is there was a filming order. Oh yes. And I think it's interesting now that this taking place after nine lives, when he shuts down buzz asking for advice, we saw a layer of, emotion there, but we didn't really know what it was about. Well, you can tell it's coming from a place of hurt, like maybe because he was rejected or he's feeling affronted in some way, but you don't get a sense of the depth of his care for his wife in that. Mm-hmm. You just get his emotional response to the rejection. Yes. Which like we're going, it's like that was the tip of the iceberg. Now we're going a little bit below the surface of the water and seeing what is fueling all of that. And think about it. There's all this going on where, like I said, where Buzz is planning his wedding. And now he's without a relationship and he's just longing to be with the one he loves. Well, and it shows like for me, you know, when you're looking at these characters as, as they are being fleshed out, as they are becoming multi-dimensional You know, when he has that interaction with Buzz in Nine Lives and Buzz asks him, you know, can you can you help? And Carlton immediately shuts it down. Like as an audience member, you could actually read that at that point as he's just a jerk. Yeah. You know, that his maybe sense of professionalism is so strong that he can't be civil in his work environment to a coworker. There's so many things that you could just assume very quickly what's going on in that scenario. But then when you come to this episode and you see like the, the depth of emotion that's occurring, I feel like he's almost being exposed as an emotional person when he doesn't want to be seen that way. Right. Which is why he's shutting down these conversations so fast because he's experiencing these big emotions in 
public. You know, it is his workspace, which is not a super public place, but it is still public. And he doesn't want to be experiencing these emotions around other people and in public. Well, and I think he's the type of guy who would think that he should be able to somehow deal with these emotions in a different way than people deal with emotions just by nature of being human. Yes. You know, everything he wants to have this order to. And so he, I think he imagines that emotions should be the same way that he could compartmentalize and organize and things will just work out if you just put everything in the right boxes. But with human emotions, it's just not that way. No. And so in in that way, it is out of hand for him because unfortunately he's human too. Yeah. And so it is very difficult for him, but we're seeing that vulnerable side that he doesn't really want others to see. Yeah, that he doesn't want exposed. Or that he doesn't want to admit that he has. I think that's also very, very true. I feel like this this scene gave Carlton his character a lot of dimension that um, that we're actually going to get to see play out in the the series overall. Right. I think it's interesting because that last scene then, when is is a third attempt where Juliet tries to reach out to him, mm-hmm. you know, so what are you doing? She's a little bit concerned at this point. And he just says, I'm shooting. It relaxes me. So this time he doesn't shut her down completely, yeah. which is interesting, but he also doesn't explain himself well, and he to doesn't, the fullness, you know, that yeah. would be explainable. But there is a slight softening there. So this episode is all about communication and we have Sean and Gus who are very not communicating. Yes, but still getting their message up across. Always. Always. In every way. And all of the subtext as well. Yes. And then we have Lassie and Jules who are making every effort to communicate and not getting anything across. To communicate very clearly even. Very yes. clearly and very directly not getting any idea across. But then we get this picture of Lassie and his ex who in very small phrases everything is said. Yes. And I think that's interesting. And yeah, she has four words on that card. Yeah. I mean, he sent one card, she sent one card. That's all it took. Yeah. And yet things are radically different at the end of this episode than they were when they began. Yeah. For Carlton to say, to say the least. Yeah, that's very true. Fun, fun, fun. Fact, fact, fact. Fun, fact. For this fun fact, I am doing references again. Why? Because this episode is chock full of them. Beginning with the title of this episode, Who You Gonna Call? Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, which is a reference to the theme song of the 1984 Ghostbusters movie. The song is by Ray Parker, which reached number one on the top 100 charts and stayed there for three weeks. The next one I have written down is Like Butter, which is from an SNL skit, Coffee Talk. Oh, the Coffee Girls. Yes. So Linda Richman would say, Like Butter. Yeah, that's right. Because Coffee Talk was, that was Mike Myers, right? And are you confusing that with Austin Powers? No, like Linda, <laughs> Linda Richman was the character that he came up with that was like idolizing Barbara Streisand. I think the the concept for Linda Richmond came from. That was a funny sketch. That was such a funny sketch. I actually- I'm all the clamped. Uh, we, ha- we had a, a recording of Barbara Streisand that was live and she would say, talk amongst yourself. It's like butter. But it was, it was she was referencing back to Linda Richmond. Right. Well, she actually, I think, was a guest on the Coffee actually, Talk show. She actually was at one point. She yeah. was a guest. I think I think Linda Richmond was all verklempt. She couldn't handle that. Probably not. Yeah. So the next one I have is when Sean talks about the Indian burial ground. He said, I think it's in Poltergeist or Poltergeist 2 or Gremlins. Yeah. So I kind of focused in on the Indian burial ground more on this than Poltergeist, Poltergeist 2 or Gremlins, which are all 80s movies. Poltergeist and Poltergeist 2 are like horror, demon possession movies, ghosts. Gremlins are these little mogwai. Don't feed them after midnight. Don't feed them after midnight. So the, there's not an Indian, Indian burial <laughs> you ground. Just said, mogwai. Isn't that what they were? Yeah, that's really funny, though. The there wasn't actually an Indian burial ground 
in Poltergeist 1, Poltergeist 2, or Gremlins for that matter, they think that there's a Mandela effect with us continuing to think that there's an Indian burial ground in Poltergeist, that it's just such a common thing in our culture to say, oh, it's, but they're- Ah, like Luke, I'm your father. Yes. Like that is just so commonly used and believed that the pop culture belief has taken over the actual truth. Well, Mandela effect is actually a little bit different than that. Okay. Explain it to me. The Mandela effect is where like masses of people remember actually seeing something happen or occur that did not occur. But there is a reference to a piece of property being on an Indian burial ground. One single line in The Shining. Ah. So there is a lot of like cultural um, thinking that a lot of these movies are are like on an Indian burial ground. Right. But it does seem to be taken from that single line from The Shining. Which we know the creators were a fan of as well because we have Here Comes Lassie later yes. on in a different season. In a different season. So the next one I I, I was just thinking about old tech, which – Having been from the 80s, like, I'm I'm kind of used to seeing the older tech. It doesn't really throw me for a loop. To, so to see the the Motorola Razor flip phone yeah. or the little slide phone that Gus has. The Palm Pilot, I the, think it was, yeah. But when they were flipping through photo albums, that is some old tech. Most people have, like... Like the digital frames. Like the digital frames that just flip through all the photos. Like, yeah. we don't have books and books of pictures out now. And I was like... When they, when they, he was like, "Do you have a photo album?" And I was like, "Oh, that, yeah, wow, that's a, uh, that's some old tech there." Yeah, the CD case is totally awesome. <laughs> um, next, and this one is not necessarily a a pop culture reference, but when they come out of out of the the Lassiter and Jules are coming out of one of the shops, and they say that this is where Regina King gets her mail, and outside is a mailbox and it says u.s mail service but this is a prop because they are not in the united states when they filmed the scene that's right so mailboxes in the u.s don't say u.s mail service they just say u.s mail and so i thought that was kind of interesting not to mention the fact that i when my son has some friends who've never who claimed to have never seen a big post office box in life, in real life. Do they still have them around? I mean, they have them in the, at the post office, they have the built-in ones in the wall. Yes. And the ones where you drive up, but yes. like the big blue box on the corner of the street. There's, there's big blue boxes at some postal offices here in town. And there were even just five years ago, there were the big blue postal boxes like that, but I haven't seen any recently. Interesting. Yeah. Now, one of the countries I lived in, they still had them. They were green and they were still in public places when I moved there, but I don't know if they're still there now. Yeah. That wasn't that long ago. Well, but sometimes not that long ago actually is, there's a lot can happen in a short amount of time, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. We'll cut the not that long ago part out though. We'll just end it with the green. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So... Sean also makes reference to the Louvre, which is obviously the art museum in Paris. Right. And he says, the Louvre Junior. Louvre. Tout. Louvre Petit. Le Petit Louvre. Yes. And in this, he says the Night Gallery, which is not a museum, but a, a sci-fi TV show. That aired in the U.S. from 1970 to 1973. Oh, my goodness. I know. That's before Sean's time. It is before that Sean's time. I did not know this reference. That no. was one that I had to kind of look up and go, hmm, what's the night gallery? Because everybody knows the Louvre or the Louvre, depending on how you choose to pronounce. Jaws, there's four, there's four Jaws films. I think we might touch on that in the aftercast. All right. Because I didn't watch Jaws till I was an adult, so I have some opinions. It's amazing what they can do with two notes. 
I also wrote down here the list of movies when they're trying to come up with the movie Sybil, which is a movie about a woman who had multiple personality disorder. And this was before it was named um, Dissociative Identity Disorder, so DID. And the name of that movie is Sybil, and it stars Sally Field. So, but the the list of the movies that they that they have are The Flying Nun, Smoking the Bandit, Norma Ray, but they also list Hooper, to which Sean replies, I don't think Sally Field was in that. And Gus says, Then who am I thinking of? Sean says, Terry Bradshaw. Former NFL player Terry Bradshaw. Yes. Yeah. So this is he and Petite Little. Yes. Le Petite Sally Fields are so similar. I find so hilarious is Sally Field was in that movie. She looks absolutely nothing like Terry Bradshaw, who, like you said, big burly man, football player, rather petite woman. That joke actually really, really got me after I looked it up. So, and then the last one I have is Sean references the uh, the Adonis that is his, their new secretary. Right. And Adonis is just a Greek, he's a Greek god who is especially known for um, his remarkable beauty. Yep. And that's a common phrase used all through pop culture. Oh, all the time you hear yeah, it. Even in, even in literature, it's used to reference. Of masculine beauty. Of masculine beauty, yep. yeah. Yep. Their muscumness. One of the things we see in this episode that I love, we see Gus assert himself. Yes, we do. He puts his foot down. He says, this is what we're going to do. We even see him drive his own car. Well, what? Right? I know. I know. So we we do. So kind of talking about what we talked about before when we were talking about Gus really like choosing to take the case mm-hmm. and everything, you know, up until this point in the episodes, we've seen Gus being dragged to all these places where even in Nine Lives, He's like practically begging Sean for a sit down talk, a day off. to take a break. Let's take a break. Let's kind of get things situated. Let's figure things out. And how that was a really pivotal episode in him as trying to figure out who they are as a a partnership. yeah. Yeah, for psych. So one of the things I found that was really interesting about this episode is its filming order, like the production number of this episode was actually before Nine Lives. Oh, it was it was number five in the order, and so I think I'm I'm not sure if they chose to put it after because it to me it makes more sense that it comes after Nine Lives. I would think so too. Simply for that very reason that up until that point, Gus is exhausted because he's had no say in the matter, and it's not until this episode that we really see him be able to kind of take the lead. Yeah, and so this episode, like I said, it was in the production order number five. But now it's not airing until after Weekend Warriors, which is interesting. I think I probably would have put it between Nine Lives and Weekend Warriors simply for the fact that Juliet also makes a comment to Lassie. What about that psychic guy? Yeah. Sean. And I think that in Weekend Warriors, there seems to be more familiarity. She's starting to get to know him more and appreciate him more. Whereas that comment alone makes it seem like he's still a little bit of a stranger. She's still feeling him out and it's, he's still just kind of a resource. So I'm not really sure what happened there and I would have probably put them in between, but I trust our, our makers, our creators, our creators are of psych. psych. And I am glad though, that they chose to air this after nine lives, because to me, it makes all the difference that we have that buildup of Gus being dragged along, Mm -hmm. dragged along. He's fed up. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's had no say in the direction of this agency until now. And I will say, this is the first episode where we actually have a client from outside that is not related to the police station at all coming yeah. into the agency the client, for a case. The client searched them out instead of them searching out a client. Right. And so yeah. that is a unique thing. And so that's something else that like Gus would probably really love to have because, you know, 
He always it's is. good for business. Well, and he's always paying for everything out of his own pocket. So anything that helps the business make a little money is going to save his own pocket. But he has a personal investment in this case because of his childhood experience, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's really cool to see him finally saying, you know, I've I've thought about who I am. This is I am part of this team. Like he sorted out in nine lives. In nine lives at the end, yes. And to, to, to follow through with this, nope, I have just as much say as you do, Sean. We're taking this we case. We are taking this and case. And he sticks to his guns in that very beginning when uh, Robert walks in the door. Yeah, I love that scene. But one of the things that I noticed is literally minutes before Gus is putting his foot down is we see Sean making all of these accommodations for their new secretary. Right, who's supposed to be doing those things for them. Yeah, so like he'll answer the phone for her. He's actively making coffee for her. Right, which she's being paid to do, not to not do. Not She's being paid not to not do. He's paying her so he can accommodate her. Apparently. Yeah. And yet... He would not ever make any of those types of accommodations for Gus. And even he doesn't want to make an accommodation for even taking the case. Right. And uh, like he does actually offer Gus a cup of coffee, but only because he's already making it for the girl. Yeah. Right. And I guess it's like because, you know, Gus, he has Gus. He's not going to lose Gus. He could potentially lose this girl. Well, he's definitely going to lose the girl. He's definitely going to lose the girl. Let's just be honest. I mean, she's only there for the pay. Oh, yeah. And apparently just the day. Absolutely. So (laughs) certainly not for the coffee. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, like he he can't even like accommodate his best friend in this. He's so used to having that upper hand. Yeah. And that's why it's so shocking when you – See Gus driving his own vehicle. Right. Well, but see, that was a point where it ma- where Sean made it look like he was accommodating Gus. Yeah. Right. He's like, okay, fine. But if we're going to do that, let's at least get a snack. Look, I'm I'm conceding. I'm doing something. We'll change our clothes. We'll get a snack. We're, we'll go. And so it's like he's he's letting Gus think he has control. And so Gus is actually in the driver's seat. And it's fantastic. And we get that beautiful shot. Again, talking about direction. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful scene where we're just seeing him jollily driving along. And then, boom, nothing's changed except them in the wrong seats. Yes. And it's it's a great shot, like, to have that cut right there. Yes. So that you can see that switch from, you know, Gus, who's literally driving this case, to driving the car to, wait, 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 Sean is now driving the car? Sean's now in the driver's seat. And it's like, oh, yeah, maybe things aren't quite as in Gus's control as he wanted them to be or as he was thinking they could be. Yeah. I One of the things that I really like about that particular scene is like the like the thought questions because you're you're like I feel like your gut reaction when you see that cutaway yeah is like um how did they not die when Gus fell asleep and they switched seats right yeah like all so of you, a sudden they're driving and, and, <laughs> and so, whoa I wake up yeah so you have this thought process that you actually have to go through of oh wait a minute they're in different clothes they stopped and got food they you know and um, but I still like every time, every time I see this episode, when it gets to that and they switch with that, with the way that that cut is, it's so stable and so static. I always am like, yeah, whatever. How did they not die when Gus fell asleep at the wheel? Right. And then just that <laughs> idea that, that shock that Gus would be in. Cause I'm thinking I've, you know, I've been in places where I've actually had to drive on the opposite uh, side of the road mm-hmm. and I've been. And of course, then the driver's seat is in the opposite side of the car. Yes. And if if a visitor is with me who's used to like the American way, sometimes it's like another car will be approaching and 
even though we're not, they're not seeing it because they're in what they think is the driver's seat. They'll have that moment of panic. Yes. Because they're out of control because they're a passenger and there's nothing in front of them, just a dashboard. And it's like, you almost wonder, is that like what Gus felt in that moment? Oh, I didn't even thought about that. <laughs> you know, like that he, I mean, for sure he would have known he was getting in the passenger seat because he probably felt drowsy after eating, but being that incoherent from those six allergy tablets, would that also add to that shock of waking up? Oh, I would imagine everything felt like a shock after yeah. six allergy tablets. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. All right. So another place where Gus really puts his foot down is when he demands that they stay for that interview. Yes. And this is really key because Sean's already figured out, hey, she didn't do it. So his mind is already to this place of we can move on. She's not guilty. And he's right. She's not guilty. Yeah. And they so can he's move just ready on. to go home. But here's what's great. Gus demanding that they stay for that interview gives them the key piece of evidence in this whole case. Uh, Gus's French accent? Not quite. Although that is equally as intriguing. <laughs> um, but basically, she reveals that whole incident of her friend seeing Martin Brody. Yes. Right. And that ends up being the key piece of evidence that in the end helps Sean put all of the final pieces together. Yeah. To figure well, out what's happening. Martin, Martin Brody is, is the killer. Right. Yeah. He's, he's that third personality. And so had Gus not put his foot down. They could have potentially not known about Martin thing. Brody. They would have still known she wasn't guilty and they would have been correct. Mm -hmm. But there might have been another psychiatrist in the morgue. That is so very true. Yeah. Gus to the rescue today, man. I know. And Gus, I mean, he pulls his weight on this team in so many ways. But I think it was really great to see him actually stepping up. Yeah, I, I just, I really do. I love the fact that he asserts himself and says, I get to have things that I want in this partnership too. Yeah. Yeah. And then in this final bit, we see that because he's, when he's telling Sean that Sean has to do the firing of Leslie, mm -hmm. he's standing up for himself saying, I'm not going to do this, but he's also standing up for the agency because there are no real grounds to fire him. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because in the past, there are times when Gus probably would have walked out on Sean and let Sean, Sean like muddle his way through it just to kind of be snarky and let Sean learn his own lesson the hard way. And it wouldn't have mattered what the consequence was to whatever the situation was. Mm -hmm. And there would have been times where Gus would have looked at the consequences of the situation and said, I'll sacrifice myself for that. And he'll play along with Sean just yeah. for the sake of the consequences. And in this situation, walking away is actually for the betterment of the situation as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's, it's like he's both standing up for himself and the agency in doing this because he actually cares about the consequences of the agency. So he's not leaving Sean to muddle through it with no consideration. It's actually with consideration. Well, and yeah, like to a certain extent, the reputation of the agency can be very impacted by this. Like if they're going to fire people without cause. Right. Which Sean still obviously does. Right. But but Gus says, I, I'm not going to be a part of that. Right. You have you have to do that. You're the one that hired the, the swimsuit model. And so you have to take responsibility for the actions that you've done. Right. And I think it's just, it's really great because we get to see him really following through with that desire to find his place on the team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is one of the things we talked about so much in nine lives. I love that bit of uh, trivia that gives us that good context to yeah. this, that we've got Gus going, I need to feel respected. I need to feel valued in this partnership to Gus going, we're doing this. We're doing this. We're taking this case and this is what we're doing. Right. And then, even back, you know, what are going to be the next episodes and seeing how that that fleshes out. So all through this episode, as Gus is really taking a stand, 
we see Sean kind of pulling and fighting for that control. So it mm-hmm. is that kind of Gus versus Sean feel. Yeah, it does kind of feel like a Gus versus he, Sean. He really held his own. And in holding his own was how everything came to be solved. Bravo, Gus. Bravo. Jolly good show. <laughs> All right, Susie, so let's wrap up this episode. There were a few things, because we talked about how this episode's all about communication. Yes. There were actually a few things I forgot to even mention. My my favorite is probably everybody's fan favorite. Yes. So I'm actually going to go with one that's a little different. Okay. I'm going to go with just the whole scene between Lassie and Jules, where she says, oh, that's a really good approach. And he says, what, that shocks you? And she says, I meant that as a compliment. And he goes, oh, well, thank you. Just real kind of snarky tone. And, it's and kind she of an says, awkward scene. <laughs> she says, was that sarcastic? It is so awkward, but the, the tones of voice are played so perfectly. Right. Like the, it, yeah, it's just, it's so, it's just brilliantly done. All right. Well, my favorite is probably the fan favorite is probably your favorite. And yes. We would be remiss not to mention it since it does show up in pretty much every thread that talks about famous site quotes. Oh, yes. And that is, good morning, detectives, collecting donations for the policeman's ball. We don't have balls. I honestly have no response to that. I honestly have no response to that. Is probably your all-time favorite site quote because you say that to me a lot do i i honestly have no response to that (laughs) but uh speaking of tone of voice i do also really like it the way that uh rode rodriguez plays off the line when they're talking about martin brody the character in jaws and she's like oh how did you know that and he's like I've seen Jaws. Yeah, I've seen Jaws. I feel like so many actors could go overboard with that and just play it too big in one way or another. And it just is so natural and so beautiful. I I love the way he just says it. It's just unbelievably realistic. I've seen it. I love it. So good. I I honestly have no response to that. (laughs) All right. So make sure you join us next week for the aftercast of episode seven. I know I, for one, will be talking about Jaws. So if we missed anything, if we got something wrong, or if you just want to tell us something to talk about, go ahead and reach out. Our email is susieandlizzie at gmail.com. That's S-U-S-I-E-A-N-D-L-I-Z-Z-I-E at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram at susieandlizzie. That's at S-U-S-I-E-A-N-D-L-I-Z-Z-I-E. We hope to see you there. Have a great week. This has been So Psychological. You've heard it both ways. I hear that.